Welcome to episode 32 of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the center. Later in the show, John is going to take us through Eric Fromm's book, Escape from Freedom. But today, we'll start by focusing on the Justice Center's court case against the Alberta government for their charter violations during their COVID response. The case was actually filed at the end of last year, but the government wasn't ready to present any evidence, as they're required to do in Canada, in order to demonstrably justify taking away everyone's charter rights. After delaying and delaying, the government was finally ready to make their case, and they filed their affidavits and reports at the beginning of the summer. We'll take a brief look at what they filed, but the intent here is not to have me, who ain't no expert, analyze this stuff. Rather, the intent is to publicize this stuff, so that people who have been affected by it can read it for themselves. Perhaps there are experts out there who might want to take a crack at analyzing and criticizing it. In effect, by putting this on our website at jccf.ca and drawing attention to it on this show, we're crowdsourcing the cross-examination for the Court of Public Opinion. Now, by way of introduction, perhaps, John, you can give us an update on the case. Where is it at right now? Well, citing a health crisis, as if we've, you know, not had that for the last year and a half, according to government claims, but... The uh, the Alberta government has engineered an adjournment of the hearing based on the the so-called health crisis. And uh, even more concerning is an announcement that the courts are going to require vaccine passports to enter courthouses throughout Alberta. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is actually following in the lead of, I think, Manitoba was the first province where the courts are imposing this. And of course, this is in the absence of any medical or scientific evidence that, that this is somehow necessary for safety. This is based on the inaccurate, unfounded, baseless assumption that vaccinated people are not spreading the virus and unvaccinated people are spreading the virus. Therefore, uh, the unvaccinated must be punished and need to stay home as much as possible. Uh, totally unscientific. And of course, uh, other unscientific things that, that play into this, the, the fact that uh, contrary to the warning that put the world into a state of fear in March of 2020, COVID is not the Spanish flu of 1918. So there is just no medical or scientific or rational basis of any kind for this fear, for all of these measures, lockdowns, mandatory vaccines, and everything else. Mm-hmm. Now, it's particularly disconcerting because courts are supposed to be neutral arbiters. So when somebody challenges a government law or policy as a violation of charter rights and freedoms, the courts are supposed to be neutral and they're supposed to basically take the approach and the attitude, well, we're going to look at the evidence, we're going to listen to the arguments and and the evidence of the claimant We're going to listen to the arguments and evidence of the government. And as between these two opposing parties, we as neutral courts are going to come down with a ruling and we're going to rule in favor of the claimant that that these are not justified 
violations of rights and freedoms, or we're going to rule in favor of the government and say that they are justified violations of rights and freedoms. So courts are supposed to be neutral. But now you've got a situation where uh, people challenging the constitutionality of these measures, uh, anybody challenging a vaccine passport is going into court. And in effect, the courts have already aligned themselves with the government and placed anyone who's challenging the vaccine passports uh, in the near impossible position of trying to convince a court that its own complicity in these measures is both incorrect and unlawful. Now, yeah. makes for an uphill battle. It's not impossible, but certainly you have uh, you have a clear expression of bias on the part of the courts when the courts are saying that uh, all the judges need to be vaccinated or else they can't work there. And when the courts say that uh, you need to be vaccinated in order to uh, to walk into a courthouse. Now, I wonder if, if um, they're going to make exceptions for Zoom so that they're going to try to un- try to accommodate the unvaccinated people by saying that you can uh, you can show up for a court hearing by way of Zoom. I don't now, know. Now, uh, this was mentioned. I did hear you mention this before. You were thinking of adding the vaccine mandate to the lawsuit because that's actually not in there right now, is it? No, we're gonna we're gonna take advantage of this adjournment, and we're going to make the the vaccine mandates part of the constitutional challenge right on. that was already launched. So we had launched a constitutional challenge against lockdowns, and now we are going to expand that to include the the vaccine passports. Right, so they can't declare it moot anyway. Yeah, so that's yeah. that's good. That's a good part. Okay, uh, I'm just gonna list off the evidence that was filed by the government, because the interesting thing about it, I'll just say overall, is that this was submitted at the beginning of July, around July 12th or something like this. And that was, of course, when they had basically taken off most restrictions at that point. So, of course, they're all kind of jolly and we're not locked down and look at how good we're doing and everything like that. Of course, now looking at it after they sort of did this public mea culpa, oh, we shouldn't have done that, blah, blah, blah. It, it kind of casts a whole different light on the stuff that they're saying in here. So that's the nice thing about it. It gives a nice snapshot of where they were at the beginning of summer and contrast that now with how they are acting with the vaccine passports and the vaccine mandates. So that's the real value of this, even though it may seem outdated, but it gives you that snapshot. I think there's like a total of Hang on. Nine affidavits were filed. Uh, There was one by Dina Hinshaw, the chief medical officer of health, of course. There was one by the chief medical examiner in Alberta. Now, he's basically talking about how they qualify the deaths, COVID deaths, and whether they are, you know, when they're examined and when they, how deaths are attributed. There's uh, one from Kimberly Simons. She's involved with the COVID modeling. That is the... uh, the modeling that went on to predict uh, the uh, disasters that were oh yes the thirty the t- the thirty two thousand deaths that uh, we were in, yeah, well. in the risk of of getting even with lockdown measures we could have thirty two thousand Albertans die of COVID well, right. where are we at today two and a half thousand and this is in a context of forty thousand deaths in a year and a half two and a half thousand dollars for uh, two and a half thousand deaths from COVID out of 40,000. 
and uh, no impact on on life expectancy. So right. it, it just is not, you know, every every death is sad, every death is tragic, but this is not something to be afraid of. Right. The interesting thing about the modeling, now I, I of course read over most of the Manitoba evidence as well, and they had a similar type person in there. And I kind of got the, the impression generally from reading all the evidence, but in particular with these modeling people, that they are basically, you know, given instructions from the from Canada Health and their modelers, and they get to tweak them a little bit and push them out there and look at all the work that I did. So, and I kind of got that generally, you know, that, you know, even Dina Hinshaw, the chief medical officer, and uh, Brett, what was his name, Rusin, in uh, Manitoba, that these people seem to be taking a lot of directions from Canada Health. And that's why in the past podcasts where I've said that, you know, it all seems to be emanating out of some central command. It was based on that original Manitoba evidence. And I really didn't get convinced otherwise when I read through this stuff. Now, of course, I have only read it once and briefly, and I'm certainly no expert. So anyways, uh, there was a, uh, the, the fourth one was from somebody called Patricia Woods. She's from Statistics Canada, and she filed an affidavit on death statistics, and she's out of Ottawa. There was a Scott Long. Uh, he is the acting manager of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, sort of like our version of FEMA. And he talks about how great we did with our emergency response and how we should never have followed Sweden. You know, we never did. And that's a good thing. Of course, that was at the beginning of summer. And I will note that today, uh, Sweden has announced that they're getting rid of all COVID restrictions, including vaccine passports. So they seem to be ahead of us. So maybe we should have followed them. Anyways, this guy in his affidavit said that he's sure glad that we didn't. He said a bunch of other stuff as well. I would ask I would ask Scott Long whether he thinks that 85-year-olds in nursing homes with emphysema cancer and heart disease are going to live forever. And, you know, if that sounds like a stupid question, maybe it underscores a stupid policy. Because I think part of what's been driving this the last year and a half is just this notion that everybody lives forever and we can somehow come up with public policies that are going to make everybody live forever. It's kind of a refusal to deal with the reality of death. And it's also a refusal to allocate resources effectively to where they can do the most good and actually increase population life expectancy, let more people live longer lives. Lockdowns have done the opposite of that by driving so many people into uh, unemployment and poverty and despair and isolation and, and uh, mental health issues, so on and so forth. Well, he makes a curious statement in there. This sticks out in my mind. I don't actually have a note on this, but it, the statement was something to the effect that the planning is more important than the plan. And I didn't quite follow that. Now, he is his, his background is military, so maybe it has something to do with that. I'm not sure, but it sounded awfully strange to me, a layman in this particular circumstance. Anyways, that was the fifth affidavit. Uh, there was the sixth uh, was a guy, uh, Dr. Jason Kindrichuk. Now he is assistant professor and research chair in emerging viruses in the Department of Medical Microbiology, Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. Now he also filed as an expert witness in the Manitoba case. And I read through his, basically his refutation there. Or basically he talks about 
uh, the seriousness of the illness and, you know, how contagious it is and et cetera, et cetera. He does a great big thing about that. All in all, he seems like a widely respected guy. Now, the interesting thing about him for me personally, right, was that, you know, I looked through all his qualifications and I saw that he, in addition to all the work that he does in the publications in medical journals, he does, he also writes articles for Forbes magazine. And back in April of 2020, he wrote an article to the effect that, you know, it's highly unlikely that the coronavirus emerged from a laboratory, which of course uh, <laughs> didn't age too well. And there was another one after that in May where he talked about the key to solving or the key to licking this pandemic was basically the repurposing of therapeutics. And he was pretty gung-ho about therapeutics back in May 2020. And I really haven't seen anything about that since. And of course, that would have stood out to me. That jumped out at me because I I have said in this podcast. So therapeutics would be what? Vitamin D? Repurposing. Yeah, repurposing. Uh, yeah, things like that. You know, basically, that was long before they thought of a vaccine or they had a vaccine. You know, the vaccine was just basically on the horizon or over the horizon. So he's he's saying you know, that the key to this is repurposing off-label other medicines, right? And I thought it was really interesting because, you know, we don't hear about that in Canada at all. It's And it got shut down, of course, down in the United States as well. Around the rest of the world, uh, they seem to have gone with therapeutics. Anyways, I thought that was interesting. He had very technical pay, uh, filing on his part, very long as well, with lots of citations. So it'll be great. Some people can go to town on this stuff uh, when we post it, if we get it up there. Uh, the seventh affidavit was from somebody called Dr. Nathan uh, Zellius. He's the uh, medical microbiologist with Alberta Precision Laboratories. And that's the laboratory that does the PCR testing. And I found his fascinating because it seemed to me, and this is where I, again, you know, I have to stress that I'm not an expert on this, but, you know, he starts off by saying, you know, this is very reliable test and all this stuff. And then as you get farther down the affidavit, it starts looking less and less, uh, well, solid, right? You know, that's basically by the time I'm finished, okay, I know all about that stuff from the PCR test because it's basically what I've been hearing from everybody else. It's just not that reliable, da, da, da. This, it kind of took me back to Dina Hinchow's affidavit because she makes a statement in there that kind of threw me because it's not something that I experienced anywhere else. And that was, she was saying that the PCR test here in Alberta is highly accurate, doesn't get fooled by any other viruses. And nowhere in there does she say what the cycle uh, level <laughs> is. Now, trust he, me, trust me. It's really, really accurate. I oh, won't yeah, tell no, you, I won't tell you the cycle yeah. threshold. I will uh, not tell you that. But, uh, but I'm going to tell you, it's just really accurate. So super accurate. Me. No, I mean, super super, accurate. so accurate. I was like kind of blown away and um, I would have to. Hmm. Yeah. Anyways, that, that threw me. Uh, that's why I really liked his affidavit. This, this guy that does the testing or is in charge. So of he starts, testing. he comes out swinging with how great the PCR test is, but then as he goes on and on in his affidavit, more qualifiers, he's kind of, yeah. more and more qualifiers that, well, it's, it's actually not quite that reliable after all because everything's all very subtle and nuanced yeah does does this uh, nathan zellius talk about the cycle threshold he talks about it but he he doesn't say what but does we, he say what the cycle threshold is no for no he it, just talks about it generally he does mention 20 30 and 40 you know as the uh, cycle thresholds so they don't mention the exact one here 
And uh, does he admit that if it's over forty, you're going to get a hundred percent positive? Well, that's what he start. You start to break down, right? You know, it starts to get a little. As you read farther down, he goes from being very assertively positive to a little more qualified. So, you know, I I, I found his just fascinating, anyways. And and I'd be interested to see what some people with some expertise have to say about that one. So I'm really looking forward to getting some feedback from our audience if uh, people want to go through this. Uh. The eighth one was from a guy named Chris Shandro. He is an assistant deputy minister uh, with the Ministry of Jobs, Economy, and Innovation. I found his name was well, it was Chris Shandro. Hang on. Our health minister's name is Tyler Shandro. I don't know if they're related. They just have the same last name. Was. I'm told that uh, Tyler Shandro is no longer the health minister in Alberta. I haven't. I'm oh, he's actually the, he's the head of the Ministry of Jobs right now, isn't he? <laughs> Which is what where Chris Shandrew is. That's oh, okay. So we have the two Shandros at the Ministry of Jobs. Okay. Well, I know. I don't know All what right. it means. Here's a, here's a funny little anecdote there, though, about this. Because I think last week I'd mentioned that I was going to start looking into the contracts and things like that. So, so what I did was I uh, started looking for lobbyists and lobbyist databases. And, of course, I did go to Alberta. And there is only one from Big Pharma that I find at this point anyway, and that's Cole Pinow, the CEO of Pfizer, uh, Canada, Pfizer Canada, located out in Quebec. And he registers, I think, on March 31st this year, and he's going to speak to two different ministries. One is the Ministry of Health or the Health, Alberta Health, and the other one is the Ministry of Jobs. So, so... I thought it was kind of funny when I saw the two Shandros there, you know, all of a sudden they're together in the Ministry of Jobs. And this is where Cole Pinnow went to lobby. And also Minister uh, Copping, I think it is his name. He's the head of health now. He comes from jobs over to health. Anyway, just an anecdote. You know, I don't know if it means anything. It's just kind of funny that to see that, uh, you know, these were the two two ministries that Pfizer decides to lobby and they decide to, they do a switcheroo with the ministers, uh, you know, just the other day. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, his affidavit, he's talking mostly about the uh, rent relief, tax relief, uh, funding for small businesses and medium businesses that the government did during the pandemic. And so that was basically monetary pandemic relief. He lists all that with copious, um, attachments as well you know here's here's the form you fill out that's an attachment you know so there's lots of lots of you know here's the paperwork kind of exhibits. does he present a, a bottom line in that affidavit on uh, total cost in alberta of of what the government has put into uh lockdowns and you know uh not total cost no he talks about the programs and i didn't see a i didn't know. see a whole page that added up to anything there i think you might have to go through it and add it up which i didn't do because I'm just because right now we've got we've got vaccine passports in place, preceded by eighteen months of of lockdown policies, and all of this based on this claim that we have to save the healthcare system from needing to take care of patients uh, and and not getting too full. But the the people running healthcare, which ultimately is the politicians, they should be fired after eighteen months of not having simply expanded capacity. It's it's absolutely ridiculous when you think about it that the that Jason Kenney announced in April of 2020 that we could we we could and should and would expand to have over 1,000 intensive care unit spaces. And now we're having our rights and freedoms taken away 
based on uh, some supposed threat to hospital capacity, which in the past year and a half has not been increased. Now, previously, in years gone by and decades gone by, the fiscal hawks could have said, oh, we can't afford to just expand our healthcare system because that's going to create, you know, deficits and debt and we're going to push our children into debt. And so we, we, we just can't afford it. That may have held water, but it cannot possibly hold water today when you've got governments that are taking on tens of billions of dollars of debt uh, provincially, hundreds of billions of dollars of debt federally, crippling the economy, destroying livelihoods, uh, you know, killing so much economic prosperity. And so you cannot with a straight face say, oh, well, we couldn't afford to expand healthcare because we just don't have the money. Well, uh, Jason Kenney and every premier and prime minister Trudeau have, you know, found plenty of money to, just rack up our, our, our debts. Oh, yeah, so, for sure. Well, maybe now that Tyler Shandra is over at Jobs, he can find people to build hospitals. He's over. Yeah, create some jobs by building some more hospitals. Yeah, you're yeah. the Minister of Innovation maybe. now, buddy. Get get to work, you know. So, <laughs> uh, anyways, the last affidavit I'll mention quickly, uh, that was by a guy named Darren Headley. He's the Senior Assistant Deputy Minister, Treasury Board Secretary, Ministry of Treasury Board and Finance, with the government of Alberta. His is the most amusing affidavit because, you know, he just threw everything, including the kitchen sink into this. So what did you guys do to support the people during the pandemic? Well, they just list everything the government did. I mean, you know what they used for relief in this thing? Well, the highways, building highways, that provided jobs. So, I mean, it's just this massive list of everything the government did, regardless uh, you know, whether it's pandemic related or not. And, uh, oh, so you got every kind of government spending. Every kind. <laughs> yeah. He just, I guess, okay. yes, to, to help, to help save the people from COVID and lockdowns. Uh, we paid school teachers to, you know, uh, if to provide education to kids, you look at this thing and you go like, <laughs> Oh, good, good thing. We had a lockdown because we wouldn't have any roads built otherwise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, there's that. Um, anyways, that, that's the sum total of it. Uh, I, it would be pretty boring if I started drilling down into it with my uh, level of expertise. So like I say, maybe we'll get it posted and we'll revisit it if we get some interesting insights from people with greater expertise than this mouthy guy. So <laughs> I'll say that, okay, at least we got the evidence. We know it's out there. We know it's dated now. We know that you guys are going to be including the vaccine mandates. So that's going to put a, a different spin on it as well. Yeah, we're going to challenge const yeah. constitutionality of, of vaccine passports. Yeah, so that's, that's actually going to make it, you know, harder for them to say it's moot because, of course, that's ongoing. So we'll call um, a lid on that for now and uh, go on to our next topic. I know that you really wanted to talk about this book by Eric Fromm in light of the vaccine mandates of the vaccine passports. Maybe you could just dive into that. I have a copy of it here. I haven't read it that I've skimmed it, you know, so. It's a great little book published in 1941. It's called Escape from Freedom. Mm -hmm. And the author is Eric or Erich, uh, E-R-I-C-H, like a, a German Erich. Eric Frum, F-R-O-M-M, so Eric Frum, and the book is called Escape from Freedom. And it is 
fascinating, not just in relation to vaccine passports, but just what we've been seeing in the past 18 months with Canadians willingly, uh, cheerfully, enthusiastically giving up their rights and freedoms uh, without much of a fuss. I'm talking about the majority. Okay, you've Mm. got people like you and I, and maybe a lot of the listeners to, to this podcast have been very concerned about it and are not blithely, cheerfully, uh, uh, happily giving up their rights and freedoms. But but sadly, the majority of Canadians have been, um, uh, you know, quite, quite compliant, uh, very naive and gullible, uh, instantaneously believing the big lie in March of 2020 that COVID is going to be like the Spanish flu of 1918. Which I, I can understand yeah. if people got scared for a week or two, but the the evidence was in within a month or two. Uh, definitely by May of 2020, all the evidence was in that this was much more like a bad annual flu than the Spanish flu of 1918, and that's relevant because it was the fear mongering of Neil Ferguson of Imperial College, who said that millions and millions uh, of people would die in the United States alone, tens of millions. Uh, across the world, that this was something that was going to be like the Spanish flu of 1918. That's what caused the fear. That's what uh, brought in all the the lockdowns. And that's what's proven to be false uh, since May of 2020. So June, July, August, September. So it's been a year and four months of um, public policy based on unfounded, unwarranted fear. Which is why the governments want to ditch this or avoid going to court and talking about it, in my opinion. They seem to always just sort of kick the can down the road, I should say. Pull the foot. Well, yeah, when the Alberta government was sued in December, they sought and obtained the court's permission to present their evidence in July of 2021. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about that. Here you are, you're violating rights and freedoms of, of Albertans and somehow you, you don't even have the evidence that you, you can't pull the evidence together in a week or two or three or in a month. You cannot pull together the evidence to justify the violations of these rights and freedoms. That's obscene. That's outrageous that they would have asked for. And, and it's it's obscene and outrageous that the, the courts would have given them eight months. Um, yeah. That's just... They didn't have it. Uh, completely contrary to what a free society is, is all about. If government is violating rights and freedoms, they ought to have the evidence. They ought to have done their homework ahead of time uh, before passing those laws. And if those laws are challenged, they should be able to, on an instantaneous basis, or you know, practically, okay, a week, two weeks, they should be able to put forward all the evidence right then and there as to why they're violating our rights and freedoms and to have had eight months of that is uh, despicable. Mm. And it, it reflects poorly on both the government as well as the courts. And then just to repurpose evidence from Manitoba, I thought that was a little bit cheesy considering the amount of resources they have. You know, why did you have to go to that guy? Maybe because he had one already. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't have a problem with, with the Alberta government getting you know, experts from other provinces. I think that's fine. Okay. I have a problem with, with the eight-month delay I think that's obscene. Okay, back to Escape from Freedom, which is... So Escape from Freedom is written in 1941, and the author, uh, he goes through the, um, the emergence of the individual, the ambiguity of freedom, 
And he looks at freedom in the uh, medieval period, freedom in the Renaissance, freedom in the Reformation, uh, aspects of freedom for modern men. And then he goes into mechanisms of escape, which include authoritarianism and automaton conformity. And then he has a fascinating chapter on the psychology of Nazism. And um, it is, uh, it's as relevant today as when it was written in 1941. So I'm going to go through the book uh, quite quickly and just read certain select passages to give listeners a flavor of it. And uh, it is available on Amazon, I think, if you want to order it. So he writes in 1941, uh, we've been compelled to recognize that millions in Germany were as eager to surrender their freedoms as their fathers were to fight for it. Instead of wanting freedom, they sought for ways to escape from it. And that other millions were indifferent and did not believe the defense of freedom to be worth fighting and dying for. So that is in the opening pages. Is that one of the, is that in Freedom a Psychological Problem, chapter one? I think so. Okay. Um, and then he talks about the emergence of the individual. And he talks about uh, tribal societies, pre-industrial societies, agricultural societies, and even even in the medieval period. He says that uh, this identity with nature, with clan, with religion, gives the individual security. He belongs to, he is rooted in a structuralized whole in which he has an unquestionable place. And so he argues that even though there's a lot more pain and suffering on a physical level in eras gone by compared to the modern era, right? You think of something like dentistry. Right. (laughs) Used to be, uh, you know, people still dislike going to the dentist, but it used to be a lot more painful than what it is now uh, in in terms of just ripping out teeth with a pair of pliers and uh, without anesthetic, as an example. So speaking of the, uh, the, the medieval man, he says, but although the medieval person was not free in the modern sense, neither was he alone and isolated in having a distinct, unchangeable, and unquestionable place in the social world from the moment of birth, man was rooted in a structuralized whole, and thus life had a meaning which left no place and no need for doubt. A person was identical with his role in society. He was a peasant, an artisan, a knight, and not an individual who happened to have this or that occupation. The social order was conceived as a natural order, and being a definite part of it gave a feeling of security and of belonging. There was comparatively little competition. One was born into a certain economic position which guaranteed a livelihood determined by tradition, just as it carried economic obligations to those higher in the social hierarchy. But within the limits of his social sphere, the individual actually had much freedom to express his self in his work and in his emotional life. Although there was no individual in the modern sense of the unrestricted choice between many possible ways of life, which he says is a freedom of choice which is largely abstract, there's a great deal of concrete individualism in real life. So there's medieval man. Okay. Well, if we and, follow the uh, Great Reset, maybe we'll get back there pretty quick. 
<laughs> so he says he says the basic the basic assumption concerning economic life was that economic interests are subordinate to the real business of life, which is salvation. So this is kind of the medieval man has, has a lot of a lot more pain and suffering in a lot of ways than modern men, but did feel very rooted, very secure, and uh, according to Eric Fromm, had a lot less anxiety. And now we get into the the Renaissance and, and the Reformation, and so there is a disappearance of the feeling of security, and uh, the individual. Um, Everything depended on his own efforts. So this is a big uh, shift. And uh, there's the increasing role of capital, of the market, and of competition, and change the personal situation into one of insecurity, isolation, and anxiety. Uh, the unpredictable laws of the market decided where the products could be sold and at what profits. So we got this new freedom and new prosperity. We got the rising living standards, but now man is feeling insecurity, isolation, and anxiety more so than than what he ever felt in the in the medieval period. Eric Frum says the feudal economic system was based on the principle of cooperation and was regulated or regimented by rules which curbed competition. With the rise of capitalism, these medieval principles gave way more and more to the principle of individualistic enterprise. Each individual must go ahead and try his luck. So talking again about, about this change from the medieval into Renaissance, Reformation, and capitalism, Eric Fromm argues that man is free from all ties binding him to spiritual authorities, but this very freedom leaves him alone and anxious, overwhelm him with a feeling of his own individual insignificance and powerlessness. The free, isolated individual is crushed by the experience of his individual insignificance. And then along comes Darwin. Look out. The individual became more alone, isolated, became an instrument in the hands of overwhelmingly strong forces outside of himself. He became an individual, but a bewildered and insecure individual. Aloneness, fear, and bewilderment remain. People cannot stand it forever. They cannot go on bearing the burden of freedom from. They must try to escape from freedom altogether unless they can progress from negative to positive freedom. The principal social avenues of escape in our time are the submission to a leader, as has happened in uh, fascist Germany and Italy, and the compulsive conforming as is prevalent in our own democracy, writes Eric Frum in 1941. Okay, so that's the first half of the book. He has set out the problem. So the problem is that we get this freedom that we did not have in medieval times, because now we have uh, capitalism and we have the Reformation. We have religious choice. You can choose what religion you want. You can choose how you're going to make a living. You can choose to set up a business. You can choose what product to manufacture or sell. You can choose to travel. You can choose to trade. Uh, you've got all this freedom that medieval man doesn't have, but there's also this profound insecurity and anxiety 
That is how I would summarize the, the first half of the book. So the mechanisms of escape are authoritarianism is one of them. And Eric Fromm writes, the first mechanism of escape from freedom I'm going to deal with is the tendency to give up the independence of one's own individual self and to fuse one's self with somebody or something outside of oneself in order to acquire the strength which the individual self is lacking. These strivings help the individual to escape his unbearable feelings of aloneness and powerlessness. The frightened individual seeks for somebody or something to tie his self to. He cannot bear to be his own individual self any longer, and he tries, to, he tries frantically to get rid of it and to feel security again by the elimination of this burden, which is the self. The annihilation of the individual self and the attempt to overcome thereby the unbearable feeling of powerlessness are only one side of these strivings. The other side is the attempt to become a part of a bigger and more powerful whole outside of oneself. The annihilation of the individual self and the attempt to overcome thereby the unbearable feeling of powerlessness are only one side of the strivings. The other side is the attempt to become part of a bigger and more powerful whole outside of oneself to submerge and participate in it. This power can be a person, an institution, God, the nation, conscience, or a psychic compulsion. By becoming part of a power which is felt as unshakably strong, eternal, and glamorous, one participates in its strength and glory. One surrenders one's own self and renounces all strength and pride connected with it, one loses one's integrity as an individual and surrenders freedom, but one gains a new security and a new pride in the participation in the power in which one submerges. One gains also security against the torture of doubt. One is saved from making decisions. He is also saved from the doubt of what the meaning of his life is or who he is. Now, this goes on to tie in with the authoritarian character. He, he admires authority and tends to submit to it, but at the same time, he wants to be an authority himself and have others submit to him. Now, moving on to the psychology of Nazism. So this is all the, the background. So we switch from the medieval to the modern man. The modern man is free. He's an individual. He can make choices, but he feels a lot of anxiety and then we've got this uh, authoritarian character, and we have the desire to escape from freedom. And what Eric Frum writes, writes here, in considering the psychological basis for the success of Nazism, this differentiation has to be made at the outset. One part of the population bowed to the Nazi regime without any strong resistance, but also without becoming admirers of the Nazi ideology and political practice. Another part was deeply attracted to the new ideology and fanatically attached to those who proclaimed it. Psychologically, this readiness to submit to the Nazi regime seems to be due mainly to a state of inner tiredness and resignation, which, as will be indicated in the next chapter, is characteristic of the individual in the present era, even in democratic countries. Now, this is, this is fascinating here. Yeah. Eric Frum writes, again, on psychology of Nazism, it seems that nothing is more difficult for the average man to bear than the feeling of not being identified with a larger group. 
However much a German citizen may be opposed to the principles of Nazism, if he has to choose between being alone and feeling that he belongs to Germany, most persons will choose the latter. So again, he's writing in present tense because the book is written in 1941 when the, the Nazis were actually in power in Germany. So describing what's going on in Nazi Germany, Eric Fromm says about the, the people there, they are told again and again, the individual is nothing and does not count. The individual should accept this personal insignificance, dissolve himself into a higher power, and then feel proud in participating in the strength and glory of this higher power. So modern man is susceptible, argues Eric Fromm, to getting wrapped up in a higher purpose, and that eases his aloneness and isolation, gives him a sense of meaning, gives him a sense of significance to get wrapped up in the big cause. And so, yes, uh, accept your personal insignificance, but dissolve yourself into the higher power and then feel proud in participating in a mission. And Fromm talks about the two trends that we have already described as fundamental for the authoritarian character, the craving for power over men and the longing for submission to an overwhelmingly strong outside power. So all of this is horribly uh, pessimistic. I'm going to stop there. I've got, I've got one more small quote. The book is quite depressing because mm. it's talking about the psychology of mankind and about how th there's part of us that seem to want to embrace this loss of, of freedom. And I go back to, in chapter one, he says, We've been compelled to recognize that millions in Germany were as eager to surrender their freedom as their fathers were to fight for it, that instead of wanting freedom, they sought for ways of escape from it, that other millions were indifferent and did not believe the defense of freedom to be worth fighting and dying for. So I think, sadly, uh, this is what we've seen in Canada in the last year and a half, is that, that a lot of Canadians do not have a love for freedom. And I think the COVIDism, the lockdownism, uh, and now the vaccinism as an ideology is giving a lot of people a sense of significance and purpose because they can lose themselves in this big project and they can just say, you know, well, what I want doesn't matter. I I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to give up socializing with friends. I'm going to lock myself in my house. I'm not going to enjoy going to restaurants or watching team sports or connecting with friends and family. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to make all these sacrifices. And I'm going to get wrapped up in this higher cause of you know, saving mankind from a virus. And I'm going to be part of this big project to save lives. And I'm going to gladly, cheerfully give up my freedoms to be part of this big project. Mm -hmm. And so there's an anti-freedom psychology that is, um, it's there. Well, okay, yeah. But what I heard, especially when you got down to the last quote there, was, I mean, I, excuse me for stating the obvious, but it sounded like, well, what happens is we go from our early man, uh, medieval man, and progress through anxiety and freedom till we get to the point where we're without religion. And so we come up with... A religion here on earth and uh, whether you call it whatever 
political movement or COVIDism, essentially you're finally surrendering your freedom to a higher purpose, similar to the religion that your forefathers had adopted. That's kind of what I heard was a bit of a vicious circle there. So maybe that speaks to some kind of psychological need in man uh, based on, I don't know, our mortality. You need a higher purpose and you're looking for the higher purpose. Along comes this movement where you can be a hero simply by strapping a piece of gauze across your face. Well, it's pretty easy. And, uh, you know, why not? It doesn't take much effort. Well, I don't think it's inevitable. I think you can have a free society where people enjoy, you know, the freedoms of, of expression and association and religion and conscience and, and so on and so forth. I think you can have a, uh, a free society, but you definitely need a society where uh, people have a significant uh, sense of meaning and where they feel that life has a purpose, where people feel that they have a goal that they're pursuing Oftentimes, that those needs are satisfied by religion. So, people that are, you know, uh, devout practicing uh, Christians, Muslims, Jews, or even somewhat practicing, somewhat devout uh, religious people feel that their life has a has a meaning and a purpose. But if if society gets to a point where that meaning is is lacking, then I think you have. Uh, you have an opening for authoritarianism. And, and that's what we're seeing now. The past 18 months is uh, just the, this huge authoritarian public policies where uh, quite literally our, our freedom of association, uh, that, that freedom has probably been attacked more than the others. Mm-hmm. Uh, freedom of religion definitely has been attacked. Uh, freedom of expression is being attacked by, by things like the federal C-10 and C-36, but that's freedom of expression has not really been attacked directly by government as part of the lockdowns, although it is certainly being undermined as well. No, they're going at it from other means. They're using this. Going at it from yeah. other means. But the big victim is freedom of association. Like right now, in, uh, in most, if not every Canadian province, you've got vaccine passports in, in place, meaning that we don't have the freedom... Uh, if I'm a business owner, I cannot freely associate or not associate with people as I deem best. It's the government that's told me that I'm only allowed to associate with people that have been injected twice with uh, experimental uh, mRNA. And I use the word experimental on purpose. I've been criticized for it, but there are no long-term tests. Uh, in fact, I talked to my own doctor uh, a few days ago, and I, I said, correct me if I'm wrong, but do I understand correctly that, that even pro-vaccine people that, that are saying everybody should get the two jabs, you know, and a third and a fourth and a fifth, of course, because we'll, we'll need to keep on getting injected forever. Uh, but am I correct in understanding that we have no long-term results, uh, no long-term testing of mRNA in humans? And he said, yes, that's correct. So, you know, yeah. if if, Ooh, uh, if we've got a rushed process, well, we know that normally it takes 20 years, 15 years, 10 years, five years to get a vaccine to market. 
Then, I think the uh, fastest they ever did it prior to this was four years. I think it was. Usually, it takes ten years. I think it is. But the fastest, and now we're being yeah. assured it's it's safe and effective. I mean, that's the same authorities who not that long ago said that the AstraZeneca was safe and effective. Well, that got pulled, and it was safe and effective for uh, young males. And now we're being told that no, your your chance of myocarditis for young males. Is more of a threat than uh, than COVID, so young males probably should not get the. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's the same authorities, uh, yeah. and, and people gladly believe them. Yeah. Oh, of course. Why not? I think this is probably a good time just to give you a quick update on the Canadian vaccine injury reporting system. Mm. I did bump into the website last show, and I looked a little further there, and they haven't updated it since 2019. They used to be doing biannual reports. And uh, for some reason, they haven't filed one in a couple of years, which is striking as far as I'm concerned. Now, I haven't looked around on maybe other sites, but, you know, you said safe. So that's where I want to know. That's where I would go to find out whether it's safe. And I see no data there. Effective. Well, all I'm hearing now is that we're getting variants and the vaccine that they're pushing on us is increasingly less effective as each day passes and each variant appears. So it appears to be neither at this point safe or effective, or at least we don't know the, the safety of it here in Canada. Well, there's some, there seems to be some effectiveness, uh, just to be clear, if you're over 70 uh, or over 80 and uh, you, you fear COVID could, uh, could harm you, I mean, of course, statistically, even even for elder, even for older people over seventy, the the COVID survival rate is is very high. Would be a lot higher if um, uh, if we didn't have the the total suppression of of ivermectin when there are peer reviewed scientific studies showing that it decreases mortality. Uh, so we've lost a lot of lives by not using ivermectin in uh, treating COVID, uh, but. It should be a personal choice for older people uh, if they fear the risks of the vaccine are lower than the risks of COVID. Um, then, if it reduces severe illness in people, then you know that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It uh, becomes a problem when it gets pushed. I, yeah, of course. My point wasn't to say that it's unsafe. They're just not reporting it here, and we know that they reported down in the United States, as we pointed out last week, that's a highly publicized system that they have. There's some dispute now whether they're updating it properly. In fact, I think it was uh, that Project Veritas came out with a video that uh, throws some doubt on the idea of whether it's being updated properly. I don't know whether you saw that one with the nurse that was complaining. Oh, yeah, it's it's dramatic. So uh, I'll put a link down to that below in that. Anyways, this goes to the question. Of and just just a recap, yeah. just a recap from last week. Right in in eight months, there have been about thirteen thousand reported uh, deaths from the COVID vaccines, which is higher than the nine thousand deaths from all other vaccines combined in the past thirty one years. So yeah. think about that. Yeah. The reporting system where you've got all vaccines over a period of thirty one years causing uh, about nine thousand deaths. Right, all vaccines, thirty-one years, nine thousand deaths, and now we've got COVID vaccines causing thirteen thousand deaths in eight months. 
in the U.S. And those are those are uh, that's in the U.S. And those are underreported uh, because, as Dr. Eric Payne uh, said in in his letter, uh, which is posted on our website, that uh, written to the uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta, that the um, uh, these stats uh, encapsulate less than one percent of the uh, of the vaccine harms. Right. Yeah. Right. And that, like so, I said, we're using American data because there's a lack of data here in Canada. Why is that? Again, we don't know. And because we don't know, that is part of the reason people are vaccine hesitant, because we see that it's happening elsewhere, yet for some reason, miraculously, Canada doesn't have that. And it seems to be just because they're not publicizing it. That's the way it looks at this point anyway, so... Somewhat well, the disturbing. people the people pushing the people pushing the vaccines are the same people that are pushing the false notion that we should all be terrified of COVID because COVID is like the Spanish flu of 1918, and that's just not it's not grounded in facts. I mean, the government's own data tells us that COVID has not impacted uh, the death rates in Canada. In Canada in 2020, we had about uh, just over 300,000 deaths. And that's very much in line with the death rates in 2019, 2018, 2017. And we see that the COVID deaths are deaths among vulnerable elderly people who, if they hadn't died of COVID, uh, they would have died in 2020 of something else because the the COVID deaths are, are, uh, you know, people over 70, over 80 with serious health conditions. Right. So if we don't have honesty about that, if we have fundamental dishonesty with the fear-mongering telling us that we should be afraid of a virus that really we should not be afraid of, well, if it's dishonest on that front, why would it be honest when people are pushing for mandatory vaccines? That's a question I can't answer, obviously. (laughs) Come on, Kevin, answer the question. (laughs) Try to imagine what it's like to have that mindset. I can't at the moment. I'm, I'm, I guess, pretty upset at uh, at what I'm seeing out of Health Canada in particular. As I say, it seems to a lot of it seems to be emanating out of there. And the evidence that I've read uh, that has been submitted in the Manitoba cases and the Alberta cases seems to bear that out. The uh, Just to go back to the Alberta evidence here, I just want to remark that uh, I was expecting to see something from the Minister of Health in here, and I didn't get an affidavit from him submitted. I thought that was kind of odd. Are these the people that we should be hearing from, how policy is made? Anyways, okay, now I'm skipping around all over the place. What is the lesson that we learned from Eric Fromm's book? (laughs) What do you say? What do you say? Sum it up for us. We're looking in this book. We're coming out somewhat pessimistic. People are looking for a higher purpose in life. Is that uh, does it give us any sort of insight that would apply to some kind of solution at any point, or is it just sort of lead us down a dark path? Well, 1941 was uh, was pretty bleak mm. uh, at that time. It certainly looked uh, it, it looked as though. Hitler and Nazi Germany and fascist Italy and Imperial Japan look to be on track towards winning the war. The one thing we have to remember that's that we always lose sight of, right? We're looking backwards at the history. So we know that in 1945, uh, Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan were defeated 
And we know that. And so it gives us a very different feeling because when you're looking, when you're looking at what's going on in, you know, in the thirties and in the early forties, you're looking at that stuff and it seems kind of dark, but you know that the, the side of liberal democracy, the free democracies, the free societies, that it was our side that won. And so, yeah, but in between that 41 and that 45, there was a lot of blood and rubble, you know, so can't lose. And it was not clear to people in 1941 that it wasn't clear to the Brits and the Americans and the Canadians and the Australians and the French and the Dutch and the Danes and the Norwegians, you know, or even the Germans or the Italians who, who were freedom loving. It wasn't clear uh, which side was, was going to win. Now I am going to conclude though, with uh, just on a very positive note, Eric Frum writes towards the end of his book, he says, um, we find that for everybody who is powerless, justice and truth are the most important weapons in the fight for man's freedom and growth. I'm going to read that again. We find that for everybody who is powerless, justice and truth are the most important weapons in the fight for man's freedom and growth. Right now, I'm feeling quite powerless in the face of vaccine passports, in the face of um, a lot of popular support for not having these freedoms. A lot of people very wrapped up in, you know, enjoying lockdowns, enjoying vaccine passports, enjoying being able to exercise power over their fellow man. Uh, people that have enjoyed the snitch lines, they enjoy the power of being able to phone the police to come and raid the home of the next door neighbor and have the police give out tickets for because they had their grandparents over for, for Christmas. Uh, the feeling of power that you now have by excluding citizens from uh, going about their business, from going into a, a store or, uh, you know, taking their kids to the swimming pool. So you've got a lot of bad stuff going on right now. and um, But I think it's just really important for everybody to persist in speaking the truth, uh, even when it seems like nobody's listening, even if it seems like, you know, people that are speaking the truth, people that are thinking for themselves, uh, not blindly swallowing whatever the politicians are, are saying at the latest news conference, even if those of us who love the truth appear to be in a minority situation right now. We've got to keep on speaking truth. We've got to keep on fighting for justice. And we will see uh, the end of the road. We will see a restoration of our freedoms if we keep up the fight. Good. Okay. Thanks, John. That's a good way to end it. We'll, we'll call it into episode 32 of Justice with John Carpe. And like I say, great ending. So we look forward to talking to you next week. All right. All right. Thanks, Kevin.